0: 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 11. 2 Kings 14, verse 11. I'm proud of y'all for springing forward. You, usually, this time of year, Sunday school pays the price for that time change. People say, oh, I didn't set my clock. Well, since the iPhones set their own clocks, you are without excuse if you say, I didn't set my clock. Everybody has an iPhone except maybe one or two. Yeah. Well, Jess, you're just flat-out responsible then. He just turned his clock. Thank you, sir. Oh, okay. All right. 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 11. We didn't get to finish this verse last week. King Amaziah of Judah has been warned by King Jehoash of Israel about meddling. And we looked at that extensively. And Amaziah, rather than being content with his victory over the Edomites and going back to Judah and ruling over his people, decided he was going to pick a fight with Israel. And I don't think that's going to work out well for him. We're going to see. In fact, I know it's not. I've read ahead. And you're glad I did or I'd be rambling up here. So let's look at verse 11. I hope you're in Second Kings 14 verse 11. But Amaziah would not hear. Therefore, Jehoash, king of Israel, went up. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belongeth to Judah. It says Amaziah would not hear. And as I told you at the end of last week's message, it doesn't mean Amaziah could not hear, it means that he would not hear. It was a choice. Now, this message being sent to Amaziah was either read in his hearing or he read it himself. But we know he heard the message with his ear. And that word hear, H-E-A-R, as it's translated from the Hebrew into English, the word hear is not limited to receiving the sound transmitted to the ear and registering it in the brain as something you heard. In fact, the word hear is translated as the word obey 81 times in the Old Testament. So you take the original Hebrew word, and for whatever reason, the King James translators said, we'll put it as obey 81 times, and the other several hundred times, it'd be the word hear. But really, it doesn't matter if you understand that Hebrew word and what it means an example of that word is found in Genesis chapter 27, verses 8 through 9. Genesis 27, verses 8 through 9. And this is a very simple application of it, where Rebekah, Isaac's wife, tells her son Jacob, now therefore, my son, obey, that's the same as the word here, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats and I will make them savory meat for thy father such as he loveth. Now do you think that when Rebecca told Jacob to go and fetch two goats for supper for her dad, well, he had a hearty appetite, didn't he? Two goats... Do you think Rebecca just expected Jacob to listen to her and then not do what she told him? No, of course not. So with the word hear being the same as the word obey, when Rebekah told Jacob, go fetch me two kids, him hearing the message with his ear was just half of the battle. The other part was going and getting the two kids. And so... That would complete the act of hearing or the act of obedience. Now we would understand it better as obedience, wouldn't we? He heard what he was told to do and he went and did it. And now he has obeyed, assignment completed. But Amaziah would not hear, he would not obey the warning King Jehoash gave him. Now what did King Jehoash tell him? Well, in our modern language, he said, you better stay home or you're going to get hurt and he heard him say it or he heard it through the messenger but he he said well I'm going to go up and have a face to face with him and that's what the verse tells us is happening here and we tell our children to do something if they just stand there we say did you hear me and what we mean is did you obey me did you obey me now that would get their attention a little bit better than did you hear me although did you hear me ought to work so Amaziah wouldn't obey, and isn't that the simple truth when it comes to why mankind disobeys God's word? It's not that we don't see it, because we do. It's not that we don't hear it taught to us, we do. Every time a teacher or pastor reads scripture to you, explains to you what it means, and says, it's a command, God said to do it or God said not to do it, and we do the opposite then we've heard it with the ear, but we haven't obeyed it, and therefore we really haven't heard it. We've refused to hear it in the same way Amaziah refused to hear the warning Jehoash gave to him. Many people hear it with the ear, but they refuse to believe it. And if you refuse to believe what God's Word says, then you're also refusing to do what God's Word says. Here's another example. Exodus chapter 7 In that chapter, Moses and Aaron had gone before the Pharaoh with a command. Do you remember the original request Moses and Aaron made of the Pharaoh? And that was for him to let the children of Israel go three days Sabbath journey in the wilderness to worship their God. And then they'd come back. That was the request. I think it was pretty reasonable considering what happened after all of that. But... The Pharaoh didn't. So in verse 16, Exodus seven sixteen, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in verse 16, it says, And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear, thou wouldst not hear. Now, you can't say that Pharaoh didn't hear with the ear because Aaron, he was Moses' spokesman, because Moses argued with God about who formed his mouth, so he said, I'll just make Aaron your spokesman. That had to be a thorn in his side for most of his life, but that's the way it was. And Aaron had told Pharaoh, God said, let the people go. And... Now he, Pharaoh, is being rightfully accused of not hearing what the Lord said. So now we know Pharaoh heard the words Aaron spoke to him, but he didn't obey them. Therefore, he didn't hear them in the scriptural sense. And in God's eyes, you haven't truly heard the word if you haven't obeyed the word. And that's how strong the Hebrew word for hear is in the Old Testament. Well, what about in the New Testament? We're going to look at the use of the word obey, since it means here in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. We'll look at it in the New Testament, where it's translated from Greek to English rather than from Hebrew to English. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verses 15 through 16, Romans 10, 15 through 16, as Paul wrote about the preaching of the gospel. And he said, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias, that's Isaiah, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? The Greek word for obeyed, just like the Hebrew word for obeyed, means to hearken. In fact, it's translated as hearken one time in the New Testament. To hearken or to hear. And most of the world's religions teach that it's through a man's own works that he can make himself acceptable to God, maybe. There just never is any assurance. You ask somebody from... This denomination or that denomination, well, how can you ever know that God's accepted you? And their answer is something like, well, you really can't know until you die. Well, I don't want any part of that. I'll just count on what God's word says that I can know right now. But that's what most of the religions of the world teach. And I have a dear family member in my extended family who's been a minister in the Church of Christ for many, many years. And, and he's a fine man, and I love him. But many years ago, he and I were discussing a church member of his who I happened to come into contact with through the course of my official duties, which is not good for that church member. And so we were talking about this church member who had been placed on probation for his crime And my cousin said, he just needs to obey the gospel. And so he got that phrase from what the apostle Paul says. But in that denomination, what that means to obey the gospel is that a man needs to stop doing bad works and start doing good works. Stop being unholy and start being holy. Now, I did not and I do not disagree that the man needed to stop doing bad and start doing good. I didn't disagree with that. But that's not what it means to obey the gospel. And a lot of people have been confused by that. They're told by someone from that religion or another one like it, you need to obey the gospel. And the first thing they think of is, okay, what am I supposed to do? And, boy, they turn their view inward to themselves and away from the cross. And that's where the confusion is. And then it turns into fear. And desperation, and some of you may have been there before, either in here or those who watch online. If it were to stop doing bad and to start doing good, if that's what it meant to obey the gospel, then man could, quote, obey the gospel without ever hearing the gospel. He could just start doing good things. He could pray and go to church and read his Bible and so on. But if you look at what Paul wrote in that that Romans 10 passage I read you, where he quoted Isaiah 53, verse 1, he said, they did not obey because they did not believe. So obeying the gospel means believing the report of the gospel. And I'm just taking that straight from what Paul wrote. I'm not coming up with some new translation or interpretation of it. I'm just telling you what Paul wrote said the reason he said they weren't obeying the gospel is because they didn't believe the report that he gave them, the report that Isaiah gave them about Jesus Christ. And once you see that, it will change how you view the command to obey the gospel. And the definition of the gospel, if anybody ever says, well, what is the gospel? What do you mean the gospel? Hey, that's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 3. That's where the gospel is defined that Jesus died and was buried and rose again and was seen above five, by above 500 brethren, the greater part of whom remain unto this day. That's where the gospel is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this. If you took what the Church of Christ minister said, that you have to obey the gospel, and you applied it to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... How could you obey that by actually doing it? You can't. You can't lay down your life for the sins of the world. You're not a qualified substitute, and neither am I. You can't raise yourself from the dead so that other sinners might be raised from the dead. You're corrupt in your own sin if you're not saved. The only one who ever obeyed the gospel by doing it was Jesus. He did it. We obey it by believing it, by placing our faith in his obedience. Now that Amaziah has not obeyed, he has not really heard the warning from Jehoash, their armies meet for battle. And back in the text in verse 11, toward the middle it says, he and Amaziah king of Judah looked one another in the face at Beth which belongeth to Judah. Now this and the next verse will help us understand what that phrase meant back in verse 8. Because I told you back in verse 8 that that phrase, look each other in the face, meant they were going to fight. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, we're going to look at context. Remember, when you study your Bible, you look at the content, what's actually written. You look at the context, that is the verses before and after that, that tell you about the setting and what how things came to be at that point. And then you look at companion scriptures. That is, what do other scriptures say? And then you look at your concordance, which is where you, if you don't know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, you go to the concordance and find out what these words meant in their original languages because that's what's important. That's what they were inspired in, is Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. And then, very last, you may look at a commentary. And I put that very last for a reason. Because a commentary is the opinion of a learned scholar, a Bible scholar. And so that can be man's opinion. It might be right and it might be wrong. But we know the content's never wrong. The context is never wrong. If you understand it, it's right there before you. The companion scriptures are never wrong. The Bible never argues with itself. It explains itself. And then the concordance, uh, as far as, that's what we have to depend on is the translation from one language to another to understand what words mean. The commentaries are the ones that you might uh, avoid unless you're very confident in your, your study of God's word. You don't want a commentary to throw you off. You want it to lead you to truth. If it doesn't point you to truth, get away from it. All right, so there's your five C's again. From time to time, I'll give them to you. If you want to know how to study your Bible, you follow those five C's and it will not fail you. Not because I say so, but it, it points you back to the Bible. So Amaziah could have left well unknown, well enough alone, but you know what happened? He got beat in his own backyard. He went to a city in Judah. Now that's where he was king. He went to a city in Judah to meet up with his foe, the king of Israel. And he got beat in his own backyard. He was on the throne. He had beaten the Edomites. Israel wasn't looking for a fight with Judah. But if you look back in verse 8, that's essentially what Amaziah was saying is, Come on, let's fight. And that was a foolish thing to do. Now we learn a little bit more about Amaziah and why God may have allowed Israel to stomp Judah like they did. I want you to turn with me, keep your place here, but go over a couple of books to your right to 2 Chronicles chapter 25, 2 Chronicles chapter 25, and just put you a marker there stay there because we're going to read a few verses and as you know or as you've heard me tell you before first and second chronicles often tell the same stories or of the same same kings as first and second kings but in each case you may have some details given to you in one book that are not given in the other so from time to time I'll look at what the 1st and 2nd Chronicles say about a king that we're reading about in second 1st or 2nd Kings. And we're doing that right now. So in 2nd Chronicles, chapter 25, I'm going to read you verses 14 through 28. And I know that's a lot of reading. But I want you to understand why it is God may have allowed Judah to be defeated as they were. 2nd Chronicles 25, verse 14. Now it came to pass after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the children of Seir and set them up to be his gods and bowed himself down before them and burned incense unto them. Now stop right there. We didn't see that in Second Kings, did we? Yeah. So we're getting some more enlightenment about what King Amaziah did. Verse 15. Wherefore? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people, which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? And it came to pass, as he talked with them, that the king said unto him, Art thou made of the king's counsel? Forbear, why shouldst thou be smitten? In other words, you don't have any place to talk to me. Stop, or I'll strike you dead. And I know that God hath determined to destroy thee because thou hast done this and hast not hearkened unto my counsel. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took advice and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us see one another in the face. All right? And we saw that in our text, didn't we? And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying... The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trode down the thistle. Thou sayest, Lo, thou hast smitten the Edomites, and thine heart hath lifted thee up to boast. Abide now at home. Why shouldest thou meddle to thine hurt that thou shouldest fall even thou in Judah with thee? But Amaziah would not hear, and that's where we are in our text. For it came of God that he might deliver them into the hand of their enemies, because they sought after the gods of Edom. That's why God delivered Judah into the hand of Israel. So Joash, the king of Israel, went up, and they saw one another in the face, both he and Amaziah, king of Judah, at Bethshemesh, which belongeth to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel, and they fled every man to his tent. And Joash the king of Israel took Amaziah king of Judah the son of Joash the son of Jehoahaz at Beth Shemesh and brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate 400 cubits which we will read about. And he took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God with Obed-Edom and the treasures of the king's house, the hostages also, and returned to Samaria." And Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived after the death of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, fifteen years. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, first and last, behold, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? Now after the time that Amaziah did turn away from following the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent to Lachish after him and slew him there." And they brought him upon horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. Now keep your place there, but go back to the text where we were. I wanted you to hear those words so that as we study our text, you'll say, oh yeah, that's what happened that we're not seeing here in 2 Kings chapter 14. So go back to 2 Kings 14 and now look with me at verse 13, and Jehoash king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim unto the corner gate 400 cubits. The home court advantage did not help Amaziah in Judah. In sports, the home court advantage is often a little bit of extra help to the home team. They've got that wild crowd cheering for them and booing the other team and making all kind of ruckus in the gymnasium or on the foot, in the football stadium, and they're on a home court or a home field they're familiar with, especially in basketball, where depth perception and colors and all of that make a big difference when you're shooting a basketball, trying to shoot it into an 18-inch rim. And it's awfully difficult if you're somewhere where the depth perception is off, where you have... at your home court you may have a wall six feet behind the basket or ten feet behind the basket and if you go to the Frank Irwin Center in Austin there is no wall behind the basket it's a clear glass and there's thousands of people sitting behind that that uh, backboard and it makes a difference so the home court advantage is big in sports and it's it's also big in a military battle and you think about going and fighting A group of people who live in the mountains and you're from the plains and you go to their mountains and you fight them on their home turf, you're probably going to lose or it's going to cost you more than if you'd have fought them at a neutral site or on your own home court. And so if you get beat on your home court in basketball or football or baseball, it's more embarrassing than getting beat on your opponent's court or field. And certainly... Not only did Joash capture or beat Amaziah's army, he captured Amaziah. And he marched that captured king right back to his own home city, his capital city, and broke down about 600 feet of wall. That's what 400 cubits are. If you remember, a cubit is the distance between the crook of the elbow and the tip of the middle finger. And it is roughly a foot and a half. Now, it depends on how long your arms are, doesn't it? But for an adult man, a cubit is roughly 18 inches. It might be 19 on some and 14 on another. So that's why I say this was approximately, uh, it was 400 cubits, so it was about 600 feet of wall. Now let's look at verse 14. And he, that's Jehoash, took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and hostages... And returned to Samaria. Now that was the capital city of Israel at that time. So Jehoash stole from the Lord's house. He stole from the king's house. He took hostages and he went home with all of it and all of them. Amaziah meddled to his hurt, didn't he? But he also meddled to the hurt of the people of Judah. Those hostages were doing whatever it is they do before they become hostages, and they would have still been in Jerusalem had their king not lifted up himself with pride and tried to take on Israel. Let's look at the treasures of the house of the Lord for a moment. You know, really, what good are those treasures if the people who are supposed to be using them properly aren't using them properly or are not using them at all? if they're not observing the ordinances that God gave to Israel, to his people. These were daily ordinances, the morning and evening sacrifice and all the offerings, the things the priests were supposed to do. When we studied Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, especially Leviticus, we learned in fine detail what it was the priests were supposed to do. We learned about every ordinance, every sacrifice, every thread that went into every curtain, And now, these priests beg the question, have they been preaching God's word at all in Israel? Had the people been hearkening to it? And the answer is probably no and no. But had that happened, none of these things would have happened to Amaziah and to Israel, to Judah. Now what about the treasures of the king's house? It says here that Jehoash took those too. Well... Amaziah was obviously not content with the treasures in his own house because he wanted the treasures of the king of Israel too. That's why he said, let's look one another in the face. He wanted Jehoash's treasures. Listen to a parable that Jesus taught about such a man. And if you'll just write it down, it's in Luke chapter 12. Verses 16 through 21, Luke twelve sixteen through 21, this man in the parable and Amaziah have a few things in common. So here's the parable, it's speaking of Jesus, and he spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. Now what does that tell us? He already had barns that were full of goods, so full that he couldn't fit another ear of corn or whatever his goods were in those barns. And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He probably had a Tom Landry hat and a cigar on and sitting in a lawn chair with his flip-flops when he was saying that, looking up at the sky. I could just see him now. But God said unto him, after this conversation he had with himself about how rich he was and what he's going to do about it, God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we may, I believe we may rightly conclude that just as this rich man in Jesus' parable King Amaziah also had plenty. The text tells us he had treasures, and he was the king of Judah, and that's the nation from which God would bring the Savior. So they were a highly favored nation. And while the rich man had more than what he needed, Amaziah wanted more than what he had. And both men allowed the riches of this world to blind their eyes. The rich man's greed cost him his life in the parable. And Amaziah's greed cost him his freedom because we read that he was captured by Jehoash. Verse 15. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, and his might, And how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? The acts of Jehoash, which he did. This is the king of Israel. There were chronicles, there were writings that told of all of Jehoash's acts. But the ones mentioned here by name are that he fought against Amaziah once again, although he didn't pick the conflict, he didn't pick the fight with Amaziah, it's a shame that that conflict was his crowning achievement. The one mentioned by name out of all the acts that he had done. Now you contrast the list of this man's acts or any man's acts with the acts of God. And so here's the standard. In Psalm 106, verse 2, Psalm 106, verse 2, and it's in the form of a rhetorical question, which means it's a question to which the answer is very obvious. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Now, of course, the obvious answer is nobody can utter the mighty acts of the Lord, meaning in totality, nobody can name them all. They can't be numbered because they're infinite, they're eternal, and none of them are evil, and none of them are even questionable. They're altogether holy. So one way of looking at the depravity of man and how corrupt man is, is that at the end of the days of the best man who ever lived, let's just take John the Baptist because Jesus said, Man that is born of woman, woman, there hath not a greater arisen than John the Baptist. So there you go. In that day, up to that day, Jesus says there hasn't been a greater man born than John the Baptist. So we'll use him. All the acts of John the Baptist, his whole life, have to meet the standard of all of God's acts for him to be accepted by God in his own works. Well, he can't do it, could he? He had to rely on the same Savior. He had to depend on the acts of the Savior. Well, what about the acts of the Savior? Listen to what the Apostle John himself said about the acts of Jesus. Now, you know John the Baptist and the Apostle John are two different people. But the Apostle John said this in John chapter 21, verse 25. John 21, 25. It's the last verse of the book of John. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So John said, we read what the Bible said about the acts of God, God the Father. What about God the Son, Jesus There's not enough room in the world to name all of his either, to hold all the books that would chronicle his acts. Yet for a king like Amaziah, or any of the other ones before him, or the ones after him, there are books that hold all the things that they did, and that's all the things that they did. And the world can certainly hold them. In fact, the closet could probably hold the chronicles of the the acts of the kings of Israel and Judah. The mightiest kings, the greatest prophets, the godliest saints, none of their acts can compare to those of the Lord. And all of their acts put together can't measure up to the number of the Lord's. So the question is if that is the case, and it is, why does mankind get so wrapped up in human achievements, in philosophies, in wisdom? particularly when it contradicts God's word and God's works? It's a great question to think on. The obvious answer is, well, we shouldn't, (laughs) but we do. So we still live in this flesh. Look in verse 16 now in your text. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, 15 years. Years, And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So apparently here, Amaziah has regained his freedom. And the rest of his acts are written in Chronicles. And not only are his acts contained in one book, but there's not anything written about his might Now, his introduction to us told us that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not like King David, and he let those high places stand, if you remember. And because of what we read over in 2 Chronicles 25, that he began worshiping the gods of the Edomites and bringing their images back home. Because of that, it leaves us no wonder that Jehoash was easily able to take the treasures from the Lord's house in Israel. Because the place was probably abandoned. The priests were probably with the people at these high places worshiping other gods. And they deserved to lose those treasures in the house of the Lord because they didn't treasure the house of the Lord. The treasures of the house of the Lord are no good if the people don't treasure the house of the Lord. Verse 19, now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. So what this is doing is going back and giving us kind of an investigative look at how Amaziah died. It says he died, but now we're just going back in time and looking at how he died. They made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, But they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there, and they brought him on horses. And he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. So first a conspiracy was made against him, so he fled to Lachish. And that's a city that is south of Jerusalem. So not only did the palace guard, his own bodyguards, fail to protect him, They failed to protect his treasures, but it seems like they abandoned him because there was a conspiracy against him, and that conspiracy was by his own people. He ran from them. If the conspiracy was by other people, he would tell his people, hey, there's a conspiracy against me. Protect me. Protect this palace. Protect the Lord's house. But this was an inside job by all accounts. And so he was killed in Lachish and brought back to Jerusalem from which he fled. Now that makes twice he's been brought to Jerusalem when he was elsewhere. He's been brought to Jerusalem by somebody else. Once after he was dead, but once while he was still alive. So let's learn an important lesson about this. Amaziah was the king of Judah. There wasn't a higher authority in all of Judah when it comes to man. There wasn't a higher authority in the government than he was. Jerusalem was where the house of the Lord was. It's where the center of Judah's government was. And this is where Amaziah should have been. First, seeking the Lord and then governing his kingdom according to God's word. It has to be that way. The king has to seek the Lord, and when he seeks the Lord, then he'll obey the Lord in the governing of his kingdom. That's all God wanted from the kings of Israel and Judah. And going out to battle with Israel and then fleeing the Lachish when the conspiracy was made against him, both involved Amaziah leaving the place where he should have remained Now, what happens when we leave our responsibility? Because that's what he did. Both times he left his primary responsibility. Well, in Amaziah's first case, when he fled his responsibility, he ran into trouble, didn't he? He fled straight into the arms of trouble. And in the second case, he ran from trouble when he should have stayed in Jerusalem rather than running to trouble against Judah. In his last days, he should have stayed in Jerusalem Rather than running from trouble to Lakish. First time he ran to trouble, the second time he ran from trouble. I want to give you a, an example of a group of people whose responsibility was to live, to stay, to work in a certain place and not to be somewhere else. No matter what was happening, this was their responsibility, and it's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verses 52 through 53. Numbers 1, verses 52 through 53. And the children of Israel shall pitch their tents, every man by his own camp, and every man by his own standard, that's like a flag or an ensign, throughout their hosts. But the Levites shall pitch round about the tabernacle of testimony that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep the charge of the tabernacle of testimony. It was just as important for each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel to pitch their tents by their own camp as it was for the Levites to pitch their tents around the tabernacle. If the Levites left their camp, let's say they said, you know what, we're going to, pick up and go spend the night with the Simeon's tribe over here on this wing, then wrath would come upon the children of Israel. And if one of the tribes, let's say the tribe of Issachar said, well, I don't, I don't like this sun when it sets, it's really hot, we're going to go over here on the other side and get some shade in the evening, then that side of the formation Would be weakened. And if everybody pitched where they wanted to, put their tents wherever they wanted to, there'd be absolute chaos and confusion. Now we have a saying at my workplace, stay in your own lane. And the people who say it the most are the worst offenders. But... Stay in your own lane. Football coaches will tell players, you do your job. Don't worry about everybody to the left and the right of you. Do your job. If you do your job and you do your job, if you have 11 people on the field doing their job, then you get the most out of your team. And because of our flesh being the way it is, we tend to get in another person's lane rather than staying in our own. We just drift over, don't we? Just get interested in what's going on over here and We mind other people's business and forget to mind our own. Every one of us do that. And this can be tricky to navigate because on one hand, we are social creatures. We interact with each other. We work on teams in groups as a church. We shop in stores together and and so forth. Now, here's an example. I hate Costco. My wife loves it, but I hate it. The carts are one and a half times as wide as the normal grocery cart, and so what happens every time I go in, somebody is in the middle of the aisle with one of those extra wide carts. I can't go around either side, and their speed is well below the speed limit. And so in order to keep from running into someone, I have to mind their business just a little bit. I need to see where they are, where they're going, and about how fast or slow this is going to happen. But I also have to mind my business by maneuvering my cart safely so I don't hit someone. So there's a, there's a healthy balance right there. So here's a takeaway. And boy, this would, if Amazon would have just, if he'd have been here for the preaching today, <laughs> maybe he would have picked up on this. Here's a takeaway. If minding someone else's business causes you not to mind your own business, then you're out of line. If you step away from your responsibility to take on someone else's responsibility, then things are bound to get messed up. That's that's uh, that's just wisdom and that's Friday crossword puzzle words right there, Ann. Amaziah stepped away from his business to mind Jehoash's business, and he was defeated, looted, and captured. Another lesson we learn here as we close is when you step away from your responsibility, then your job either doesn't get done or someone else has to do it. And if it doesn't get done, that's a loss to everyone who depended on you. If it does get done by someone else, one of two things is probably going to happen. They're either going to make a mess out of it and you have to come back and fix it, or they're going to do better than you did and you're out of a job. So if that substitute does a much better job than you were doing, you might lose your position of responsibility. Don't forget that. Don't leave your position of responsibility, particularly in the kingdom work. God's put you somewhere. Do your job. Do what he's gifted and called you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good attention by those who were here and who tuned in today. And Lord, as your truth has gone forth, we pray that you would Take away from it anything that, that might confuse, uh, Lord, that might be misleading. And God, help us just to remember what your word says, for that's what's most important to us today. In Jesus